Welcome to Indie Insider, the weekly show where we chat with video game industry professionals about their projects, their stories, their advice to others, and of course, their thoughts on everything indie. I'm your host, Logan Schultz, and today on the show, I sit down with Paul Helquist, an industry professional who has worked on huge games such as Bioshock and Borderlands 2. Since working in the AAA space, however, Paul has gone indie and is currently working with Robot Entertainment. He and I chat about how to keep a vision for a game unified throughout a team, how to approach a sequel the correct way, how you can jump into the industry no matter what your background, even with a degree in anthropology, and his advice for aspiring game makers. Before we get to the interview, however, a couple of quick notes. This show is presented by Blackshell Media, a publishing and marketing firm working to help indie developers reach their goals and new audiences. The company also strives to offer unique, inspiring and even educational services for developers, publishers, and gamers alike, which is why we get to bring this show to you. Speaking of which, be sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, and other podcast services across the internet, and please leave a review. If you'd like to be a part of the show and share your thoughts, questions, or even request a professional to bring on the podcast, send me an email at logan at blackshellmedia.com. You can also find the most up-to-date news on the Indie Insider Podcast on Twitter by following at Logan A. Schultz. That's L-O-G-A-N-A-S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. Finally, special thanks to Paul for joining us on the show, as well as Benjamin Tiso over at bensound.com for allowing us to use his song, Going Higher, in the show. And now, industry veteran Paul Helquist. Welcome to Indie Insider. Today, I am talking with Paul Helquist, a gentleman whose work you are most certainly familiar with. Uh, but before we get to that, Paul, how's it going? It's going well. Yeah. I, I We were supposed to record last week, and you seemed like you weren't feeling too well, but it sounds like you're feeling better now. Yeah. I The day of the podcast that we were supposed to record, I had complete laryngitis. I couldn't speak at all, so it was good that we could reschedule. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's no fun at all. But I am very excited to talk to you. Um, you know, as I mentioned, you are a guy with uh, quite a resume, and I don't know um, what it feels like, you know, to have a resume like that. But but I'm excited to talk to you about it. Let's start at the beginning, however, Paul. How did you get into the video game industry to begin with? Um, I took sort of a roundabout route. I'm I'm a little bit older than than uh, you know kids these days i should say um so so we didn't have we didn't have school there was no there were no programs for uh you know video games specifically if you if you knew that was what you were interested in you probably studied uh computer science and got a degree in some programming languages and things like that sure um so my school was actually anthropology that was what my degree was in oh wow yep so tell me a little bit about that yeah, I was just I was just going to say my the story I like to tell is I'm probably one of the few game designers who can actually say he was a professional archaeologist uh briefly. That's incredible. Yep, yep. There was one <laughs> there there was one summer uh in college where I, you know, I got paid to dig holes and try to find uh, artifacts. So, tell me, I guess is that what you wanted to do? Did you I mean, I guess you went to school for it. You got your bachelor's in it, correct? Yep. Yeah, that is exactly what I wanted to do, and I sort of changed 
gears to get us back onto our, the story. Uh, in my senior year, I had to do a thesis for the honors program. I went to the University of New Hampshire. Okay. And uh, so my thesis, senior thesis for the honors program was to do like a full-blown analysis of uh, an archaeological site that I had worked on. And um, so I got a, a little bit of a taste of what grad school was going to be like in anthropology and archaeology. Sure. And it was not for me. It was <laughs> it was it was a ton of very tedious work in in the lab, and you know a lot of uh, writing up what we learned. And what what really frustrated me about it was that in archaeology you don't ever know anything for sure because you're trying to guess at what happened based on tiny fragments of people's lives from hundreds of years ago. So. Right. The whole the whole document felt like I didn't really feel like I was adding much to the to the knowledge base of of uh, you know archaeology. So uh, the thought of you know going to grad school and and getting a PhD or something like that um, in the field just wasn't appealing to me. So I started thinking about well, what else do I like to do? What else am I interested in just in my everyday life? And mm-hmm. video game video games was the second thing on my list in terms of like, oh, that might be something that would be interesting to explore. So that was my second semester uh, senior year in college. As I'm about to get my degree, I decided that I wasn't really going to pursue it much further than than that. So you finished your degree, though, correct? You got your I degree? did. I finished my degree in anthropology. Um, okay. And that summer after I graduated, I got an internship at Electronic Arts doing testing. Okay. So I drove all the way across country from Massachusetts all the way out to San Francisco and got paid $8 an hour to uh, to test a PlayStation 1 game called Future Cop LAPD, which I don't <laughs> Yep, which I don't think many people played. It was uh it was sort of an extension using the tools and and technology they had made for the Nuclear Strike games, sort okay. of a t- top-down uh, 3D shooter. And uh, so I spent all summer testing that and and sort of getting my foot in the door and seeing what, what the games business was like. How did your family feel about this pretty major shift in your life? Um, they were they were incredibly supportive. My parents in particular, um, I told kind of broke the news to them over the the holiday break after the first semester and sure. And they were like, Okay, but what do you want to do? And and I sort of I showed them this the information that I had learned about the internship and that I wanted to to apply to to be a tester out at Electronic Arts. And they were like, "All right, if that's what you want to try." And and they they're they're both very well educated, and so they were very high on me getting an education in whatever I did want to right. pursue. Right. So after I did graduate, they encouraged me to get a second degree. And my dad was a professor at a small liberal arts college in Massachusetts, so I was able to go to any uh, Massachusetts state school tuition free. So I decided to, you know, if if I if, if they wanted me to to pursue education there, then I started to think about getting a computer science degree, mm-hmm. and I went back to went back to school for that. Now that only lasted about a year. Um, because on the side, I started uh, making mods for games. At the time, the big games were Quake, 
Quake 2, um, and then Half-Life came along, and that's where I really started to uh, get my feet under me in terms of uh, making mods, level design in particular, and started working on, on Half-Life mods. Okay, excellent. Makes sense. Yep. And so eventually that led to, I, I spent, one of the things, this is an interesting little note, one thing I, when I was at Electronic Arts, I got to be friendly with one of the level designers on Future Cop, and I kind of was picking his brain one day, and, and he said one thing to think about when I was making mods back then was, he said everyone is always making deathmatch maps, that was the big thing that you would start with um, back then, and he said no one makes single player experiences but that's what most of the games are most of the games that you're going to play or actually make as a living are are going to be single player experiences and and no one pr- tries to prove that they can do that um in their in their real so to speak so um so i took that to heart and and spent most of my time working on on a big long like sort of half-life campaign that took about 45 or 50 minutes to play in a single player situation uh, tell me, just before we move too far away from it, what was your experience as an intern with EA like? Because I think a lot of people listening to this podcast, internships are, are a major way people enter the industry. Yeah, it, I mean, it was an internship program. That's how I got involved in it, but it was paid. It wasn't It wasn't sort of work for free. Right. Um, like I said, it was, it was not much. It was only $8 an hour. Um, <laughs> And and I was just I was just a tester like everybody else um, uh, that they were hiring and uh, the internship part of it I think was that it was temporary it was only for over the summertime when when the you know the schools are out so okay um, yeah I lived in the basement of of this nice uh, old lady who whose uh, son was a uh, wrote the manuals for some of the games over at EA and. And so I rented a room from her in the basement, and uh, and you know, got to, got to see some of California and and spend some time learning about the games. That's awesome. That's a great story. Just shacking up in the basement. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> yep, yeah. I, I lugged out my uh, my computer with my 19-inch CRT monitor, which weighed probably 200 pounds. Oh wow! <laughs> no. Yeah. Yep, all the way out there, t- so I could keep working on the mods while I was testing the games in the evening. And so I didn't do much other than, than go test games and uh, and then make games when I wasn't wasn't at the office. And so, what was a, being a game tester like back in? I guess this was probably the '90s, right? This was mid '90s. Yeah, this was this was 1998 and okay. 1989. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, well, what does a tester do back in 1998? Oh, pretty much the same stuff they do today. I mean, we, you know, we were assigned a particular level or a mission or whatever, and, uh, you know, we had to try to break it as much as we could, getting out of the level, um, finding, you know, enemies that weren't behaving correctly, and all the sort of things that you'd still do today. So I don't think that the process of doing uh, QA has changed that much. Okay. Um, But this was all, uh, all PlayStation stuff at the time. Right, 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 sure. So you go to school for a year, and you do all this mod, and you create this campaign, and I assume the campaign turned out pretty well. Yeah, I, I like to think it was. Um, I'm, I'm <laughs> Sure, fair enough. Yeah, I'm sure if I looked at it today, I would just, you know, be kind of embarrassed by it. But, uh, but I was able to... Um, 
uh, apply for a job at Irrational, Irrational Games in Boston, which at the time um, when I was looking at places to apply, it was exciting to have a pla- uh, to know of a place that was uh, in the East since I grew up in Massachusetts. Um, so uh, I sent in my reel to them, and uh, you know I was still at uh, EA at the time because I sent it in during the summer. Um, and so they did a phone interview about 20 minutes over the phone with, uh, with Ken Levine and, uh, Ian Vogel, who was the lead designer at the time. And, uh, and they hired me from the phone interview based on the, the reel and, and the phone interview. So you hadn't done a lot of work in games. I mean, I guess your reel is mainly comprised of mods and, and EA work. Yeah, I just, I mean, the reel was like, well, I've done some QA and, you know, I had some recommendation, you know, I had some uh, references from EA that they could uh, get in touch with if they needed to. Um, but the reel was the, yeah, basically the Half-Life campaign and a couple of deathmatch maps um, from Quake, uh, Quake 2, I think it was at the time. Um, okay. And yeah, I guess, I like... I, I, these days, I like to look back at that, and I think I was extremely lucky in terms of timing uh, and whatnot. The Irrational had just finished System Shock 2, okay. and um, I got to play that. I even got to get it from the EA company store for like $10 or something. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I was able to kind of do some research on them uh, on the cheap. Sure. And uh, I-, I loved the game, so it was exciting to, to think about working with them. Um but they finished System Shock 2, and a lot of their level design department left the company. I don't know why. It was people, like, moving across the country to be with family and, like, this kind of stuff. So it was okay. – they just had – they had a big vacancy um, in level design, and they um, didn't really have any money. So people like me who were excited to be paid $25,000 a year – uh, were exactly the type of people they needed. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So what was that phone conversation like? I mean, you're about to step in, you do end up getting this job, but what was that initial phone interview like? Um, they asked me a lot about what types of games I enjoyed, what were my favorite games and why. It was, compared to the interview processes that I've had since in my career, it was it was pretty low-key. It was, it was kind of, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of just sort of, who am I and what do I like and, 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 you know, could I articulate, talk about games and articulate what, what I felt about them was mostly what the, what the interview was. And so you get hired as a level designer at Irrational Games. Yep. Yep. That's, so that's where I started. And, uh, I worked on, started out working on a game using the Thief engine from way back in the game, in the day. That was the first, the first thing we were working on was a, a game that never ended up materializing. It was called Deep Cover. That was the the internal name for it, and it was going to be like a 1960s spy stealth game. Oh wow! Was, yeah, using you know using thieves, all the stuff that Thief was really good at with lighting and and hiding and sneaking and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and the little the little wrinkle was that you were sort of at the heart of every important thing that happened during the Cold War. Um, so I remember one of the missions that I worked on was, uh, you were infiltrating a base in Russia to, you know, you 
had some intel that there were they were working on some s top secret project there and so you infiltrate your way into this mountain uh, base in the mountains and um, you end up finding Sputnik okay in, in you know in this facility and so you know that's how the <laughs> That's how, the, how, you know, the U.S. found out about Sputnik. And then we had a mission about the Berlin Wall and a mission about the JFK assassination and the Bay of Pigs and, like, all those things that were a big deal in the late 50s and, and 60s in the Cold War. You were sort of at the heart of every one of those uh, events. That's really fascinating. So this is the first major game that you're working on. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you're, I mean, you're learning a new engine at this point. You're working with this team. What are you thinking during this process? Um, it was it was really eye opening. It was exciting to you know meet all these these people who had worked on on System Shock and Thief, and uh, and sort of hear their stories about those games and what worked and what didn't work and and sort of the process of of getting those games uh, together. <laughs> One funny story I remember um, a friend of mine. His name is Alex K. Um, he he was a tester on Thief, and they had a they had a, a, a they were asked what is the most difficult enemy in the game by the developers. They were asked you know to to give them some feedback on that, and they the top thing on their list was ladder. The ladders were was what the QA department considered the the most deadly <laughs> enemy in the game. <laughs> Because they were having so many bugs with it, they kept falling off of them and you know and dying from the falling damage. So I'd I'd get all these interesting, <laughs> get all these interesting little stories, uh, you know, sort of uh, you know behind the scenes stuff that that when you're just a, a gamer and playing them, you you never really learn about. But so it was a lot of fun to um, you know really learn some from some guys who, as the years have gone on, have have become some of the you know great designers um guys like ken of course right of course did you realize that you were working with it i mean some pretty some people that would go on to do some really amazing things i guess and yourself in that company uh no of course at that time you, you didn't it was just my first job and i was just trying to make sure that you know i i was learning as much as i could and trying to uh you know impress Ian and Ken and and you know just try to do the best I could to make sure that I was uh you know trying to keep up with with all these other guys who've been doing it for for years already. I think that's so important to hear because those aspiring developers out there, the people who want to work with you know companies that turn out to be the irrational games of the industry, I, it can just be your first job, right? And you're just doing the best work you can and trying to take in as much information as possible. Um, so that's that's really heartening to hear, actually. Yeah, and I, I think it's important for, for people, especially when they're getting that, that first job, that it's it's important to listen a lot um, when you when you get that first job and you get your foot in the door at a place. I mean, you, you always want to bring as much as you can and, and get your ideas into the game, but it's also really important to to listen closely to what the more experienced people um, are saying when they're critiquing your work and and how they react to your ideas and what parts they're they're uh, uh, reacting to, what parts they're they're um, positively reacting to and what parts they're negative reacting to and of course then the why, you know. Um, because it, it's easy, it's some. It can be easy to come in and, and think you're going to change the world on like 
you know, the first day or the first project. And, right. and that's, that's, you know, that's usually not the case. Yeah. Yeah. Although we all, we all hope it can be right. Of course, of course, we all hope, right. hope it can be. And in my case, it took me five years before I shipped my first game. <laughs> right. I mean, this first one you were working on didn't even come out. Yeah, that one didn't come out. And then uh, Looking Glass ended up going out of business and, and the Deep Cover project went with it. Um, so we moved on to another game. It was called The Lost. Um, and it was uh, going to be a PlayStation two yeah playstation 2 game um and it was it was uh basically the story of dante's inferno um oh. yep so you were you know traveling to down into hell and and uh you know going through all the circles of hell and you'd meet all these characters and and uh you could kind of transform between these characters you'd end up sort of like possessing their their souls so to speak and then you could transform into uh these different characters and that one ended up getting into some some legal issues um, with our publisher, who also was going out of business and didn't feel like paying us. Oh yikes! <laughs> and so that one ended up getting you know never coming out either. Um, so yeah, I had a I had a rough start in terms of working on things that that didn't ever uh, see the light of day. That's really interesting as well. Working for a company where. I mean, two games in a row that you were working on didn't come out. Were people ever nervous about the state of Irrational Games at that point? Oh, I, I think I was. I think people were, but I think I was too young and too naive to really, <laughs> <laughs> to really understand what was going on. But we did have a fair amount of turnover um, uh, on the Lost in particular. I think you know some people. Uh, were feeling that nervousness and and were were moving on to other things before um before anything you know before the company went out of business or something like that um but you know we we managed to keep things afloat i don't i don't know how that would be a question for ken to be honest right, sure again looking back i'm not quite sure how we we hung in there um, but it wasn't until we took the the swat project that things started to settle down um, and at the time, the SWAT project, like you said, we had just been been on two games, and neither of them had come out. Morale wasn't wasn't particularly very high at that time. Sure. Um, and the SWAT project was really a like, hey, we need to m- get some milestones done and get get you know get paid from our publisher, and and SWAT was sort of seen as something that um, was relatively simple. Uh, that that might sound um, you know, a little arrogant to say that, but we, we were always trying to do things that were a little out there, uh, a little pushing the boundaries. That was kind of a rationals thing. Sure. Um, yep. and, and after having gotten burnt on the last two from, you know, things out sort of outside of our, our reach, we needed something that we could just feel like we could accomplish. Um, and we knew sort of the path to take in order to complete it. Um, and that, and that was what SWAT provided for us. Tell me a little bit about SWAT. What was this game? So this was SWAT 4. It was part of uh, Sierra. If you remember Sierra, they had the SWAT franchise, and the first two games were like adventure games of some kind, if I'm remembering correctly. Okay. And then SWAT 3 was a first-person shooter uh, where you like controlled your squad by sen- uh, doing commands, and it was way ahead of its time. Um, and then we were asked to to make the next 
iteration of that game, the first-person shooter game with squad controls and all that kind of stuff. And this was this was around the time that the Rainbow Six franchise had just started to take off. Um, so that was those tactical shooters, realistic tactical shooters, was kind mm-hmm. of a, a you know were a big deal at the time. And this was Sierra's uh, Sierra was hoping to uh, compete in that space uh, with the with the SWAT franchise. So SWAT 4 was the first game that you finally put out. That is correct. That was the first one that I put out. And by that time, I, you know, it had, like I had said, it had been about five years. And with turnover and whatnot, I was now the lead designer. <laughs> <laughs> and that was mostly because all the other designers had left was the main reason why I eventually, you know, got put into that position. Got defaulted up. Good for you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and so the SWAT team was very small. It was just me and, and two other guys. And it was actually the perfect project, I think, to be my first uh, lead on because the design w- was fairly straightforward. We knew... We knew it was supposed to be realistic, and we knew it was, you know, we had a template with with SWAT three on on what we were trying to achieve, and and so we knew we just had to like, gotta get the multiplayer component, gotta make this many maps, gotta do co-op. Like we, we had exact exactly a blueprint on on how to make that game, which which allowed me to kind of, you know, learn how to work more as a as a lead than than just as a regular level designer. Okay, so SWAT comes out. Is it a is it a success? Is your first game received pretty well? It was received well. It just wasn't marketed at all. Oh, sure. Yeah, and it was PC only at the time, and you know the consoles were were starting to to make a big push, and um, Sierra also wasn't again in the best of shape. They I think only lasted a few more years after that before they went under as well. Right. Um, so they, they just didn't put a whole lot of investment in it, but the reviews and everything were great. I think our average was about an 89, 88, something like that. So that is good. Yeah. Yeah. We, we certainly couldn't complain and we provided a lot of uh, gameplay in that um, genre that other games really weren't doing because we had, we were trying to do authentic police stuff. We had a lot of uh, less lethal options and, you know, yelling at people. They put their hands up and handcuffing them and, and things like that instead of just, a, you know, take everyone out, which was what the more counter-terrorist uh, games were like. Sure, sure. All right, so SWAT comes out. Uh, sales are a little disappointing, but it's well-received. Then what happens? So that, uh, like I said, that helped sort of get our feet back under us in terms of, you know, feeling like we are accomplishing things and, you know, the company was making a little money, which I'm sure was, was helpful. Right. Um, and um, then Ken sort of came to the team and was like, what do you guys want to do next? You know, he had a bunch of cool ideas and we explored those for a little while, but then he eventually said, well, what do you guys want to make? And we all said System Shock 3. Um, now, <laughs> when Looking Glass went out of business, and uh, the, the, it was kind of unknown whatever happened to the actual rights for the System Shock franchise. Um, and so Ken did a little bit of investigating and, and um, started to realize that, like, in, you know, 
there wasn't that much value in us trying to get access to that license and it would pigeonhole us with publishers and things like that because it turns out of course that ea owned owned the rights right um after after everything had shaken out from from the legal stuff um so he decided he he felt like well we know what we're doing with this kind of game let's just make a new one and um and so he he sort of started this grassroots campaign through i think it was gamestop not stop spot i always get those goofed up yeah, who doesn't it's all right yeah <laughs> game spot um to get, do a retrospective on system shock and and then he teased a spiritual successor with them uh to try to get some buzz out there and then he took that buzz that was being generated and and started going to publishers with the idea for bioshock at what point in this process um i guess did you start realizing that this was going to be a big thing did the concept really sell you on it um we were all just excited yeah we were excited to you know make another game in that style that sort of first person meets rpg with with all these sorts of uh interesting enemies that are doing their own thing um you know we, we were really excited about the concept uh system shock 2 sadly was one of those games that was the best was on all the best game you never played lists <laughs> right um again it just didn't sort of uh hit the broad market as much mm-hmm. um back then um in in 99 when that came out i think 99 yeah um so there was a lot there there was i think there was a, a fair amount of pressure um for the company to do something more mass market and try to, you know, make a name for itself. And and Bioshock, as it started to, to evolve and grow, um, we started to realize that this was probably uh, our opportunity to do that. And what does that feel like to, to realize that you're holding on to your opportunity to go big with something? And this is, I mean, the first game where you really feel like you're doing something big, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it it ev- again it evolved into that. You know, I think when we first started, we weren't thinking that it was going to be that big in terms of, you know, people being very excited about it and and all that kind of thing. But as we started digging into it and and working on it and the team kept growing and growing and then we and then we uh <laughs> we asked the pretty much the entire Australian arm of a of uh Irrational, because in that SWAT time, um, Irrational opened a studio in Canberra, Australia. Okay. Um, and they ended up doing Freedom Force while we were working on SWAT. And, uh, you know, as Bioshock was, was continuing to evolve, we eventually, like, engulfed that whole studio to help us because they got, you know, it kept getting bigger and bigger and it wasn't it wasn't bigger and bigger from a like more features more features kind of thing it was just wow there's a lot to be done to make a game for the x uh the 360 um by then it was a 360 sure Um, right and so it you know the fidelity had gone up so much that assets take a lot longer and uh you know and we were inventing and and that just takes a while as well 
So you are the lead designer on Bioshock. Correct. Which is just, uh, there's something about that that's mind-blowing to me uh, in hindsight, right? Because obviously we all know what Bioshock has become, what that title means. Um, I guess let's skip ahead just a little bit. The game is done, and you're about to send it out. How how are you feeling? What's what's going on within the company? What's going on with you at this point as the lead designer of this game? Yeah, I'll back it up a little bit because I think oh, to sure, answer yeah. that, yeah, I think to answer that, it, it, it's it's about let's say it's about four months out from launch. Okay. No, actually, it's about it's one month out from launch, and we all get brought into a company meeting, right? And we're all a little bit like, hmm, this is this is a little out of the ordinary. What's I wonder what's going on? Um, and our our project lead says, well, I've got some good news and some bad news. And we're like, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, she says the good news is 2K is really really excited about the game. Um, they'd been working with us really closely for the last couple of months. We had, you know, we had people in the office from 2K uh, on a daily basis, um, sitting with us, talking with through things with us. And they're 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 really excited about the game, but they don't think it's quite ready. So oh. The ba- so the bad news was, the good news slash bad news was the good news is we get three more months to work on it. The bad news is. We have three more months of crunch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because we we have been busted our butts for the last about three or four months um, to try to hit the original date, um, which was supposed to be in in like the May-June time frame. And then once we got the extra time, uh, that pushed us towards the beginning of that holiday season. You know, I think we came out in August. Um, And and so it, it was a really interesting day because... We, we all knew at that point in time, I remember the designers in particular sitting here and we're playing the game, work, doing our work, testing it, playing it. So we're playing a lot more at that point, uh, you know, doing bug fixing and testing and all that. Right. Kind of stuff. Sure, sure, sure. And we were like, man, this game is so close. It's so close. And then once we got this three months, we knew we could do it. We, we knew that we could, it could go from, from being a good game to, to being a great game. Um, so that was really exciting. Of course, we still had, uh, you know, a lot of work to do. Get just a little bit technical with me then. This is, because this is something we see all the time, is, is games delay, really big titles getting delayed because they need something, they need those fixes, people want them to go from good to great. What do you do in those three months that really takes a game from being good to being great? Uh, for us, it was there were two major things that that three months bought us. Um Mostly, it was just crunching, crushing bugs, squish, squish, squish. We had so many bugs that were that were detracting from the overall experience and your ability to kind of get lost in the game because the bugs kept on like pulling you out. Okay. Because um, because you'd realize these, you know, oh, that's not right. That that didn't feel right. That wasn't supposed to happen. You know, you you could see them and you could feel them. And and for a game like Bioshock, that was so much about immersion. Um, though every one of those is a you know added up to just an overall not as as strong experience. So that was the first thing, just getting a much much more polished experience from bugs. The second okay. was 
it bought us a lot more time to get the tuning right, do another pass on the weapon, so they started to feel a lot better. Um, you know, the plasmids all got punched up. Like everything just got another another round of of getting the numbers right, getting the look just right, getting the sound just right, and and all of that added up to uh, to quite a bit. We, we go past that the three months, we get all that polish in, and I remember, uh, you know thinking we did a great job i think i think we'll get some i think we'll get a couple of 90s i think we'll be in the like 91 92 range in in the reviews and then positive. There, yeah it, which was we were i was going to be super happy we were all going to be super happy with that and then the 10s just kept rolling in in the first you know week or two of reviews and and it, there was a lot of excitement and energy around reading what people had to say about the game because people were saying things that you know you just you, you never plan for you never you never go into a game and having people ha having people say like you know i don't know if games are art but if if you want to know what games are all about play bioshock you know things like that um that just you know kind of floor you and make you realize uh what an impact you're having on on the people who are playing it. As of right now, I'm looking it up. Um, you mentioned the Xbox 360 version of Bioshock. It has a 96 Metascore on Metacritic. Um, yep. How, how does that feel? Um, it's it's incredible. I mean, th thinking back on it, you, you it's sort of unbelievable. You know, you you look at that number and and I mean that's an average. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't really make any sense to me, especially for a game that uh, was about uh, objectivism. <laughs> you know, like. Right. Yeah. W w I remember one of my, my a good friend of mine, Bill Gardner. He was one of my designers. I remember at one point, you know, we were reading like another preview for the game, and he was like. Can we please stop talking about objectivism? There's so much more to this game than objectivism. <laughs> but all anyone wants to talk about is objectivism. <laughs> you know, all so many of the previews talked about Ayn Rand and objectivism right, yeah. and, and, and all of this stuff. And they weren't talking about, you know, the emergent systems and, and all the cool things you could do, like catching grenades in midair and hurling them back at people and <laughs> you know what i mean like we're like there's a lot of cool gameplay in here too it's not just a philosophy uh game and and thankfully people played it and and realized there was a lot more to it than that but but that world that we created um based on some of those things was unique and 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 different and and uh, a breath of fresh air i think for a lot of people do you feel like, and I promise I'll, I'll stop asking about Bioshock pretty quickly here, but uh, uh, I'm just so fascinated by it. When you were building this game, do you feel like you spent a lot of time as a team figuring out what that world was going to be and, and what that was like to keep that all unified? Oh, yeah. That was by far the hardest part of, of, of Bioshock. Was, oh, really? Yeah, was getting Rapture and the look and feel of that place right. It was It was very... That was by far the the most uh, difficult and 
and sometimes contentious part of of the design. It was we were it was also in a time in in game development where the fidelity had gone up so much um, that previously level designers would basically do everything, and the artists would provide textures that we would put on the walls and the floors and and things like that, and and that time frame um, in the mid 2000s the fidelity was going up so so much that the level designers weren't skilled enough artists to make uh, most of the assets. Um, so the artists were spending a ton of time making all these assets and the levels started to need more of an artistic um, influence uh, just throughout the industry, not just on Bioshock, um, in order to really uh, achieve the standards of, of the day. And mm-hmm. so we were internally having a lot of uh, a lot of growing pains with shifting that responsibility away from designers and to the artists. And so there, there were plenty of times where uh, the artists and designers would butt heads a little bit about, you know, I, I need this item to be over here for gameplay and the artist saying, but that looks bad over there and, you know, uh, that sort of push and pull. Uh, to to uh, get everything working well together, um, the art and the and the design and monsters and and all that kind of stuff. So that was right during that that transition period in the industry where uh, I think a lot of studios were going through things like that. And 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 that was tough. It took us a while to to find a process for how to build the levels and and get the look right that also uh, provided everything that we needed to to make it play well. I'm sure a lot of people out there listening to this can probably relate to that in some capacity, right? It's that same idea of working with a team, figuring out your role, and then how do you keep that all unified at the same time? Uh, it's just that this happens to be on a on a bigger scale than probably most indie developers. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and it was a bigger scale than we'd ever done before either. Uh, oh, Bio- right, sure. Yeah, Bioshock by far was the largest scale project in terms of people in terms of assets in terms of you know pretty much pretty much any metric you wanted to measure it compared to the previous games that irrational had done it was it was definitely the biggest well bioshock comes out it blows everyone's minds and then what happens what happens uh to you after bioshock releases um, yeah, so for me, the, those last few months were, were a bit difficult. Um, there were some, you know, there were some, there was some tension in the office between me and, and, uh, and, and Ken in particular. Um, and, um, I, I, I came to realize that, um, if I wanted to continue to grow, I needed to find somewhere else, um, by then, I had been at Irrational for eight years, and I had started out, as I mentioned, as like you know the the kid straight out of college who's never done this before, and and uh, you know and and had had grown a ton over that time, but uh, there was nowhere else for me to go. You know, I'd kind of gone as far as I could go um, within Irrational. Like there's, we make one game at a time. Ken's the creative director, uh, lead designers, pretty much as far as I can go. So I knew if I wanted to kind of, you know, continue to grow and expand and, and see what else I could do, it was time for me to move on. So 
I, you know, it's a lot of doors are going to be open right after you make a game that's as well received as Bioshock. So I, I tried to take advantage of that uh, as quickly as I could. Sorry, sorry, I'm taking a look over uh, over everything and just and and listening to this. I'm ready. Give give it to me. What happens? Uh, yeah. So I, you know, I uh, it's one of these weird things, and it's something that I I talk a lot to with with young. Uh, younger people who are in the industry and and at that same sort of phase like finished a finished a game and are maybe thinking about moving on i was i was like maybe it's time to move on and i got a call from a recruiter like it always happens you always get calls from recruiters after uh after a game comes out and they said well you know i can just tell you what's out there and i'm like sure who's looking just wanting to get a list not really thinking about actually applying anywhere. Sure, right. And uh, before I kind of even realized what happened, I was on airplanes flying all over the country doing interviews with, with all these big-name studios. And and it's sort of once I, once I went out and talked to other people and sort of saw what else was out there, it sort of, it sort of flipped that bit in my head of like, I guess I'm. I guess I'm doing this. <laughs> <laughs> sure, like, right. It, it was. It was kind of this weird whirlwind where I, I didn't. Uh, at first, it was just to talk to people, and then you know, then you're getting offers, and suddenly you realize, like, well, I don't think I can just say, yeah, never mind at this point. Um, and and but I, like I said, I knew it was it was ultimately uh, time for me to, to to try to find something else. So I I interviewed at a bunch of places. Um, I let's see. I talked with ID Software. I talked, with, of course, with Gearbox. I uh, went out and interviewed at Valve. Um, so I, I I went to a few a few different places for sure, and and uh, and uh, saw what was out there. Well, you were the lead designer on on Bioshock. Did everybody? Did it feel a little bit like everybody kind of wanted you on their team at that point? Yeah, I mean, the recruiter basically told me he was like. You, you know, we could get you interviews at every single place that, you know, has mentioned anything to us. Where do you want to interview? Because all these doors will be open. Um, and, and so that was one of the, you know, I kind of looked at the list that they had sent around and kind of picked the studios that I was uh, aware of or uh, admired their work. And and so that was why, uh, you know, id was, you know, sort of the the granddaddy of all of the you know, first-person action games, right? So that right, was very of course. that was very intriguing to me. And then, of course, uh, Half Life and Half Life. Uh, you know, Half Life got me my job. So yeah, so, right, yeah. So Valve, of course, was interesting to me. And then um, the main reason I interviewed at Gearbox was uh, a little bit before Bioshock came out. There was a Game Informer magazine, and the cover was Borderlands. And I read the article about it, and it sounded like a really interesting and exciting uh, project. And, you know, at the time I read it, I was just like, oh, that sounds like a cool game. I'll check that out when it comes out. And then, and then uh, you know, when this opportunity to talk with people came around, I was like, oh, yeah, there's, you know, I knew about Brothers in Arms and, uh, and those titles. But I was like, oh, yeah, and they're making that really interesting Borderlands game. So they're doing some interesting stuff down there. And that was why I went and, and uh, talked with Gearbox. And how did you end up deciding? What was the deciding factor for you? 
It was mostly just the feel of the studio and, you know, the, the way the interview went and just sort of the, it was, it, it felt like a good fit. You know what I mean? Um, compared to the, the other places that I interviewed. Uh, Valve actually didn't end up offering me a job. They, uh, they wanted me to do like a, a level design test and like all this extra stuff that I was just, I wasn't interested in, in spending all the time on. Um, but I did have I did have a good offer from from it as well. But just the the feel of the the studio and and the people that I interacted with, uh, you know, I really liked liked the feel of Gearbox. So that was that was kind of the deciding factor. And uh, of course, from a more personal standpoint, by this time uh, I was married and had a daughter, and um, you know the the cost of living in in the Dallas area was was so low that um my wife was able to not have to work anymore and so it was a big it, it was a big step up in terms of you know sort of a the quality of life for my family as well right absolutely i mean there's so many factors that go into a decision like that but you did end up taking the job uh at gearbox software um creative director right well, at the time, I was just gonna. I was started out as lead designer on a new project, which turned out to be a, a Duke Nukem game, which ended up. Oh. Another, I was on yet another game that got canceled. Um, <laughs> Are you one, the curse? Did you ever worry about that? <laughs> <laughs> I I did think about that a lot. I've been on just as many games that got canceled as that have shipped. Um, but uh, this one got canceled be- when 3D Realms went out of business. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, because, you know, there was this whole thing going on with them. And, you know, I, I won't go into the details there. But, of course, when, when 3D Realms went out, there was sort of this big question mark about the the Duke franchise and who was going to own it and what was going to happen to it. And, and so mm-hmm. we ended up um, uh, moving everybody on the, this Duke project to, uh, to the other projects within Gearbox. And I ended up getting moved on to the Borderlands project. So really quick before we get too far away from it, um, and I, I don't mean to to press anything that you don't want to talk about, um, but did you leave uh, Irrational uh, and 2K on on pretty good terms? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay. Um, you yeah, mentioned 2K, some tension, so I didn't want to th- push there was too some, hard. There was some tension, um, you know, and in again in retrospect, I was I was young and probably didn't handle things very well. Um, <laughs> And, uh, so, uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm still, I'm still good friends with those guys and, um, 2K in particular, when they heard that I was leaving, um, was sad, but then they were excited to know that I was going to Gearbox because Borderlands, of course, was also a 2K game. Oh, right. Yeah. So you kept that relationship. Yep. That's good. Yep. And so I, I spoke many times and worked with the same producer and things like that when I was on, on Borderlands and Borderlands 2 as I did on Bioshock, so definitely have a good relationship with those guys so you start working on uh the borderlands franchise w- what is that experience like compared to um uh, bioshock and irrational games because you had been looking for something different yeah so i didn't get onto the borderlands project until it was very close to the end it was sort of in that same you know we've got a few more months uh to go um and a lot to do and so i got i got tagged to do the worst job in video games but 
a very, very important one, which was the tutorial. <laughs> like, this is, this is, yeah, this is like industry insider stuff. No one likes making the tutorial parts of the game. Uh, it is just the biggest beatdown to, to work on the tutorials. They're extremely difficult. Um, they're, they're hard to make entertaining and fun. And, uh, and, and a game like Borderlands, there was so much to teach. Right. Um, that uh, there are so many nuances and so many details about how, how the game worked. Um, that, uh, but I also needed to, like, we needed to get people pulled in as quickly as possible. Um, and so I, I started working on that. And it was great. What was great about it was that it forced me to learn as much as I possibly could about the game. Um, because I had to teach these things, so I need to know how everything worked if I was going to properly teach the player how to how to you know use their weapons and and how corrosive damage works versus electric and you know on and on. Um, and so it it got me to really understand the game and it got me to uh, you know make a lot of great connections with uh, with the guys who had been working on it for so long and really uh, you know get gain a lot of respect for them and them for me. So that was, that was great. So did you know, since you came in kind of towards the end of the project, did you already know at that point that you were onto something pretty big again? Nope. No idea. (laughs) (laughs) I, I was terrified that no one would get in. Like we realized that Borderlands was a game that got better the longer you played um so we were terrified and it was one of the reasons why the first hour uh experience that i was working on was so important was we knew we had to get people into the game and get them uh get them to feel the the core loop of of shooting and looting and improving and and on and on um which of course the game is is renowned for now but at the time, we were like, if peop- if we don't get people to hour five, they will not like this game. They probably won't, you know, they'll probably just put it down and tell people not to bother with it. Um, it, it definitely had that kind of problem. I, I don't think we started to realize, I have one, one story that kind of was the moment that we, I think we started to realize we had something. Um, uh, came into work one day and I had an email from uh, one of the engine programmers. He he, you know, making sure all the rendering works and whatnot. And and he doesn't really know too much about the actual guts of the moment-to-moment game because he's focused on on very uh, low-level stuff. But he says he sends this email out to to the company, and he says, "Well, last night I decided it was time for me to play some Borderlands." And I, you know, I was playing it at home, and I was playing for a while and enjoying myself. And then my wife comes into the room, and she says, did you go to bed? And he, and he's like, what are you talking about? And it was five in the morning. <laughs> and he had played all night and just didn't even notice that the whole entire night had gone by. And, and so he was like... We've really got something here, and and it was amazing to hear that kind of story, especially from one of your colleagues. Um, that you know gives you some some real hope before the game ships that there's there is a hook that can grab you and and make you lose an entire night. That that's something that's very rare. I think this is one of the reasons why I love hearing people's stories 
on this show because people learn by listening to the experiences of other people. So right now, I mean, I'm hearing the story about Borderlands and you're telling me a game that we already know turns out great. And you're telling me we're so worried that nobody's going to get it. We're so worried that it takes you so long to get to something where we feel like it's working. Right. And, and I know for a fact from talking with other people and talking to indie developers that, that people constantly worry about that type of stuff and struggle with that type of stuff, figuring out the flow of their game and how to get people into it. Um, so this is really fascinating to hear, uh, especially for a game that, again, we, we all know uh, turns out fantastic and, and, like you said, has some renowned systems in it. Yeah, the, uh, the other thing with it internally, you know, uh, I, it was a game that a lot of people who were working on the game didn't really understand. Um, that, Like, uh, my friend Matt Armstrong, who was the original uh, um, creator, you know, he it was originally his concept and he was the, the lead designer and creative director on the first game. Um, his art director didn't understand the game, like didn't understand what we were trying to achieve and, and what was going to be great about it. And, and she said to him again, during that same time frame, d- towards the end of the game, as things were, were finally all coming together that she pulled him aside and, one day finally said i get it matt i i I finally get it (laughs) (laughs) you know and and some of these games bioshock was kind of like that too that that it takes a long some of these games take a long time before you actually can feel all the things that you imagined when you were first talking about the game in a conceptual phase and um and the team and the publishers and all the people involved in it need to sometimes just go on blind faith that it's going to work out. And it, most of the time it doesn't. I, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work on two that it, that it did all click, finally click together at the end and turn into something uh, excellent. So Borderlands is completed it comes out the tutorial is is a beautiful piece of art (laughs) (laughs) i wouldn't go that far but it did its its job it got people far enough into it that uh, they kept playing (laughs) all right fair enough um and then and then where do you go from there because obviously um at some point you you need to make a sequel for this game yeah so the next thing right off the bat was dlc right you're in we're in that time frame where everyone realizes oh hey dlc keeps your game on the shelves longer and and you can make some extra money and it's a little bit uh cheaper to develop and so that was that was the big push was like okay we got to figure out how to do dlc because gearbox had never done that was the first game that came around at a time where that was a thing um so uh we started in on dlc and i was uh the dlc teams for border for borderlands one were astoundingly small it it was actually really exciting uh working on the dlc for for borderlands there was about seven people and we had about six weeks um to do the the dlcs so in in my case it was the zombie island of dr ned and oh yeah and then right after that, we did the Secret Armory of General Knox, uh, the same group of about seven people. And so we had, we had myself. I did all the missions and all the story, uh, all the story elements. So like all the main plot, all the side missions, and and all everything involved in telling whatever those little stories were. Um, and then we had like 
the monster guy. Uh, Ruben Cabrera is a fantastic designer. He and he just kept cranking on making new new monsters, the zombies and all that kind of stuff. And we had one level designer and one artist, and you know it was like the tightest uh, possible group that could that could crank that stuff out. We had yeah we had one level artist, one level designer, one uh, modeler, and and you know and that was about it. You said and that's so, so exciting. Yeah, it was it was it was energizing. I mean, the the deadlines were completely obscene. They were like ludicrously <laughs> short. Um, but at the same time, we were all sitting in one room, and we all knew exactly what we were trying to do. And ideas are flying around the room, bouncing off each other, and like, oh, I've got this cool idea for a quick mission. And then the the artist would be like, oh, I know exactly what you're gonna need for that. I'll start making it, and it would I'd get it in a, you know an hour later. And it, you know, we were just uh, you know we were just flying as fast as we could uh to do everything um and there's just great energy in the actual development of it despite it being uh an outrageous deadline um and and it also became our sort of uh, experimental playground for starting to think about uh borderlands 2 we we knew what was great about Borderlands, but we knew, uh, which was mostly that that core loop that I was talking about, the shooting and looting and growth of the characters and everything. But we knew we completely fell flat on storytelling. And so the DLC was our first opportunity to, like, we can do better. We know we can do better with the tools we currently have. We know we can do better. And so that was really our, our goal uh, on those DLCs was to, to make the game engaging not only in its mechanics but also in its in its uh, envir- uh, storytelling and environment. So then take me on, on the, the very first steps into then that sequel. Um, let's see. Very first steps. Well, well, I guess my question is this. How do you approach a sequel? Because you said you knew the problems, you knew what to work on, but how do you go about following up a project like Borderlands? Yeah, the first thing we did, um, and I think a lot of studios do this, uh, especially going into a sequel, is we did a uh, critical review analysis. Sounds very professional. It does, yeah. Yeah, so what it, what it entailed was um, one of our uh, one of our guys read every review he could find of the game and made a huge spreadsheet about like all basically pulling out like these are all the things people liked these are the things that were specifically mentioned that they didn't like and we he boiled it all down so that we could kind of see the like this is what we're doing well make sure we don't screw this up and this is what we didn't do well what can we do to improve this remove it add to it expand it whatever the case may be depending on on the sort of consensus feedback from from the review analysis um so that was that was kind of the start that at least highlighted to us what we we needed to work on and there were four or five things i'll see if i can remember them it was definitely story uh vehicles was on the list um I can't remember them all, but there were there were four or five of them. Those were two big ones that I remember. Okay. Um, oh, the the missions were boring. Um, <laughs> there there were like three of them that ultimately came down, as far as I was concerned, um, to storytelling. Okay. Because um, if you're 
your missions are boring if there isn't an interesting story to go along with the mission. Your overall plot is boring. Was our overall plot was weak. Like there are two or three of them that all kind of boiled down, in my opinion, to we need to be better at storytelling. Um, so that was that was my major focus as as creative director was we need to get the tools. We need to get um, we need to have uh, the storytelling and writing a writer in particular be integrated uh, much sooner. And so that led to us hiring Anthony Birch, and he and I sat in a room together from day one. We we basically stayed in the same office the entire project, and you know we've outlined the the plot for the game, you know, uh, in the first month or two, and uh, you know I he wrote this he wrote this he wrote the entire script for the game in like on like the third month and i was like what are you doing and he he was <laughs> he he was he was young and like first job in the industry super excited and he just cranked it out and i was like you realize like this never happens and he's like eh, well that's what i did and so <laughs> it was great though because we iterated the crap out of that script because we had it so early um you know i ended up during the course of the game, probably reading the entire script of the game six or seven times. And, you know, he and I would just keep, you know, I think we could punch this up or we're not getting this important gameplay detail across here. This, this joke is falling flat. Like, you know, we just, we just really worked uh, a lot on, on the script for the game. And, uh, you know, it, it, it showed like he, he was also really great about understanding that his writing was subservient to the game. And he truly believed that it wasn't something that, you know, we had to fight about. He he believed that like his words were less important than than the gameplay we were trying to achieve. And so he was he was always great to uh, to work with in terms of uh, you know getting us something that went with what we were trying to do. Um, and that's where a lot of the wacky stuff ended up. Is he would he would come up with wacky things to try to you know explain the the interesting gameplay we were trying to achieve in whatever mission we were working on talk to me a little bit about team management because this is your first time being a full-on creative director correct Mm -hmm. yes what was that like as opposed to being lead designer how was that different and how are how are you managing all that for the first time um yeah it was it was interesting it was difficult um Luckily, I you know I like I had said before I had gotten a lot gotten to know uh, most of the Borderlands team uh, working on the DLCs and and mm-hmm. the time on the project, so I knew most of the like sort of key players, the people who who uh, you know were the all stars and whatnot, and and uh, so I had a lot of good rapport with them, and you know they ended up being my art director and and stuff like that. So so I had good relationships with them, but. That said, I mean, we, we still had times where, um, you know, we wouldn't see eye to eye and I wanted to go in this direction and they wanted to go in that direction. And, you know, we had to we had to talk some of those things through. And some of it, again, came down ultimately to trust. Uh, my art director, um, Jeremy Cook, multiple times talked to me about that he felt the game was getting too, uh, too comical, too, too um, campy to some degree. Um, and he wanted to make, he was always a voice in my ear of like, don't forget that part of this game is about being a badass. Um, 
And don't forget that that's an important part of the game as well, because some of the, you know, some of it got a little bit zanier in the second game. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it was great. It's it's always important to have uh, people around you that can keep you honest and remind you of those kinds of things. Um, and you know, ultimately, he would say, yeah, you know, I trust you, and and but I just want to, you know, keep keep mentioning it so that you don't forget. And and uh, you know, so. And and it worked works both ways, you know. I would give feedback about a particular character, you know, maybe not matching the the attitude of the writing or or whatnot, and you know, and he would talk to me about the angle they were coming from with the look of this character, and and you know, we would try to find those uh, find those middle grounds. But sometimes I would just be like, all right, you, this is your your character, um, you know, if that's what if that's the way you guys want it to be, then all right, let's go with it. Um, and so there was a lot of learning and uh, how to how to navigate those waters and and uh, and and get that get to that place where you can you can be candid with each other and not take things personally. Um, we had a we had a great rule on Borderlands 2 was uh, that at least among the leads that whenever we're criticizing the work we all need to understand that it's about the work and not about the person who did the work. You know, a, a critique about something looking amateurish doesn't mean you're bad at your job. It just means it's not, it's not there yet. It's, it, it needs more, you know, you gotta, you gotta go further. And we got to a good place where we were able to be very blunt and candid with each other and, but not take it personally, you know, and still, still be able to go out, to lunch and have a good time with each other. <laughs> sure, absolutely. And that seems important, especially when you're really trying to build something, uh, I guess, pretty big uh, and amongst a, a number of people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, take me to the end of Borderlands 2 and on into the future of Paul. Uh, what happens from there? Um. Yeah, so Borderlands 2 was by far the game that I put the most of myself into in in whatever way you could sort of measure it um i was the creative director but i was also the lead designer um oh. so i basically had two almost two almost three jobs the way i always explain it is i would spend the first eight hours of my day being a creative director while the rest of the team was there and you know everyone was 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 ready and needing needing my opinions on things or needing to know what to do next or all that stuff so i spent my first eight hours doing uh meetings and and keeping the project moving along then around six or seven o'clock at night i would start my second eight hours where i would do design stuff um i would work on missions i did all the loot chests like every chest that opened in the game i built by hand um and so i just burnt myself out yeah i believe it (laughs) it was it was way too much like (laughs) after after getting through all of that um you know uh, what it ultimately came down to for me personally was i didn't want the game to come out and feel like there was anything that I could have done that I didn't put the effort into. You know what I mean? I didn't want to have any regrets 
that, oh, people didn't like this if I'd only stayed a little bit longer, if I'd only, you know, talked to somebody a bit more about that, or you know what I mean? Um, and so I was just there all the time. I'm, it was It was crazy. It really was like eight hours of this job, eight hours of this job, eight hours of sleep, repeat. How did you balance a family with that too? I mean, you mentioned that you, you've moved a family here and you've built a life with them through all of this. Um, my wife is a saint. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't see my daughter for about four or five months. I would, I would take Sundays. It was pretty much the only day that I would take off. So I would see her, I would see her on Sundays and spend as much time as I could with her, um, with, with both of them, of course. And, but no, my wife was amazing. She just told me to do what I thought I had to do. And, and she took care of the rest. It was, it was pretty incredible. Um, now there were a few things like when I found out that she was like mowing the lawn and stuff, because I didn't have time to mow the lawn. I was like, no, 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 no. Okay. We're to stop mowing the lawn. I'll hire some people to mow the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah we 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 adjusted some of our financial priorities as well to make sure that uh you know she she wasn't wasn't killing herself in in a different direction Um, right of course so yeah i mean i i put i put too much to be honest uh of myself into that game but you know i can't complain about the results it was everybody Everybody seems to and seems to have enjoyed it. Although I will say, I am still bitter that our average was an eighty-nine. <laughs> That's right. It sure was an I was eighty-nine. Just <laughs> one point. What could I have done to get one more point of an average out of people? I don't know. I gotta. I gotta let it go. <laughs> you do. You do. I mean, yeah. You you said it. You put so much of yourself into this game. It's a it's a beloved game. People adore this um, uh, this entry in this series. I mean, yeah. Uh, it's it's blows my mind. I mean, just the other day, I got a tweet from somebody. Somebody tweeted at me and was like, "So, how does the drop rate on such and such a weapon work?" And and. <laughs> And I was like, oh my gosh, that was so long ago. <laughs> I have no access to any of the data anymore, so I have no idea. Good luck. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, that was 2012, September of 2012 that that yep. came out. Yep. Uh, so that game comes out. You're completely fried. Uh, where, do you, where do you go from there? So my, my goal was to just step back a little bit. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to be the creative director of whatever was next. I wanted, I wanted to step back and at least, and just do one job. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. That seems fair to me. (laughs) So there were some other projects getting started at Gearbox and I volunteered to, uh, just, just be the lead designer. Somebody else can, can run the show and, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll do my best to, to design the game that they're looking to make. Um, and so we we worked on some some prototypes and concept stuff for for quite a while, and things just weren't going that great. And uh, you know, I I wasn't feeling like I was. It was we weren't 
myself and a couple of the other guys who had you know had had proven ourselves on on Borderlands 2 it just didn't feel to me like we were getting the uh clearance to kind of do our thing oh um and so creative differences were starting to uh to for lack of a better term to to grow between myself and and the company and and that's when I started thinking about like well what else what else is going on in in the Dallas area because by now my daughter's you know in 2012 she's she's heading into 5th or 6th grade 5th grade I guess something like that um well, and a year, a year or two had gone by, so it was actually 2014 before you know I started thinking about uh, what was next. Um, and we were just so settled here, and I didn't want to move her and stuff. I needed to find some things in the area, so that's when I started looking around. And uh, I had a friend over at Robot, and uh, reached out to him, and uh, you know, sort of started uh, asking and talking to them. And uh, so it was, uh, yeah, it, it turned out to be a, a good fit. It's it's been uh, been great over at Robot. The it's just a, it's a little bit smaller, which is great. Um, uh, Gearbox had gotten really large as well. That was another thing that when, when I started there, it was about 80 people, and when I left, it was about 250. Yeah. Um, wow. So it was you know the culture was changing a little bit and and uh, and all that kind of stuff, and so it was nice to kind of step back, go to a smaller studio. Uh, I love that Robot's independent. Like we don't we don't use publishers if unless we have to mm-hmm. um we we kind of this is what we want to make and uh, we try to make it work within our 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 own independent budgets and um and it's really sort of on us and and uh we you know we have a have a great little team um with some absolutely amazing uh people uh and many people who've been making games way longer than I have even. So that was that was also exciting for me to to meet some of these industry veterans who, you know, made Age of Empires when I was uh, you know, in college and things like that. Right, yeah. Tell me a little bit about Robot Entertainment. Uh, what are you working on now and what is it like conversely to work for an independent company? I and mean, we talked a little bit about the size, but but what is it really like to be independent? Yeah, so um what I'm I'm working on some new concepts now. Um, not really anything that we can talk about yet, but uh, sure. I'm starting to explore. You know, in that early blue sky, you know, prototype kind of uh, kind of phase on some on some new stuff that uh, that's uh, pretty exciting. Some some things that uh, you know we have a concept right now that uh, there's no game out there like it, really. And okay. And so that's always exciting, especially for a designer to to kind of explore some new territory. And so we're right now we're thinking about how we can uh, get some internal prototypes and and see if the idea is even worth pursuing. Because sometimes there's a reason that there's no game out there like it. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> so that's what I'm doing right now. But I've also uh, done a bunch of work on Orcs Must Die Unchained, which is uh, which is sort of the big project at, at uh, Robot right now. And we're just about to launch our like official finally get out of beta um, version of of Orcs Must Die Unchained, and so that game has gone through a lot in the small time that I've been uh, at Robot. It's it's changed quite a bit, and and it's fine. It, it feels like it's finally starting to uh, 
you know, find its stride, which is which is great. Um, and so we have high hopes that uh, our first foray into a free-to-play model will, uh, you know, will will end up being a, a good a good uh, profitable uh, opportunity uh, to allow us to f fund a lot of these other sort of indie indie things that we have planned. So. What's different about being a uh, uh, indie uh, with an indie studio? That's a it's an interesting question. Uh, so far, what's been really exciting about it is if you can get the people at Robot interested and excited about whatever you're doing, whatever you're in. In this case, and since we've been exploring some new concepts, like if you mm -hmm. can if you can get Robot excited about it, you're done. You don't have to worry about. Okay, cool. We've got everybody excited about this internally. Now let's go try to convince, you know, an EA or an Activision or, or whatever publisher you might you might go to. Now we've got to do the hard work of convincing them that it's uh, something worth exploring. Um, and so that's that's really refreshing in terms of like, if the it, I, in my experience, if the team is passionate and excited about a project, it's it turns out great. It almost doesn't matter what the idea is. Um, and so it's great to have that be the only real hurdle instead of like, well, we had this idea that everyone loved, but no publishers wanted it. And so we couldn't get it funded and we couldn't make it. And so we you know, have to move on to the next thing. Um, so that's That's been the biggest thing that I've noticed in the small, short time uh, being at Robot. Is that kind of refreshing, though, for you? I mean, it seems like at Gearbox, that was something that was a little more stifling for you. Absolutely. Yeah, that was definitely one of the things that was exciting about Robot was, uh, com you know, Gearbox's games, had, had, you know, Borderlands was such a huge hit and, and had such a large budget that, um, you know, that's sort of the, the, the world that Gearbox was living in and still is. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Obviously, there's there's fantastic games that can come out, and and those guys still do a great job. Um, but it, it stinks to have to convince some third party about something that everybody you're working with is is totally on board with. Um, and it, you know, publishers it, they're the ones paying the bills, so it's not like you can just say no when they come come to you with some ludicrous feature request at the 11th hour or, you know, all those sorts of horror stories that I'm sure you've heard talking to other people around the industry. Um, so it's, it's great to be um, at a place where if those sorts of ludicrous requests are going to come from somewhere, it's probably going to come from me or, or one of my teammates. <laughs> and, and we can, we can, you know, we can either put the kibosh on it or get behind it and, and make it happen, you know? Well, I'll tell you what, Paul, we have been talking for uh, quite a while now, and uh, you do not sound like a guy who is burnt out or stifled. I mean, you seem like you're enjoying what you're doing. You seem happy about, you know, exploring these new projects, uh, and I'm happy for you. It seems all very well-deserved, so uh, I'm, I'm happy to hear this story. I'm happy to hear that uh, it seems like you're working on some exciting stuff. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it, it's been great. Um robot has been great for me in terms of a recharge um i came in so late on on orcs must die unchained that i was just sort of in there like what do you need to have what, what do you need me to do i'll do whatever and sure. so i've been i've been able to kind of 
you know, take a back seat a little bit and, and just kind of put my head down and, and make stuff again, you know, like when you're, when you're as a creative director and stuff, you spend a lot of time talking and not a lot of time making. Um, and I've over the last year or so, I've had a, had a lot of time to just make, make games again. You know what I mean? And, uh, and now that we're starting to think about new concepts, I mean, I'm sort of ready to, you know, to think about getting back into that, uh, you know, higher level uh, lead kind of position again. Well, when those new concepts come to fruition in a year, two years, three years, I hope that we can get back together again and talk some more about what you're working on. That would be great. Awesome. Well, before I let you go, again, this has been a really long episode already. Um, This has just been an awesome story. So thank you so much. I do want to ask you just a couple of questions, um, uh, broader questions about the industry, if you don't mind. Sure. All right. Um, Paul, now that you're working for an indie company, and especially uh, having come from the the, the AAA world, as it were, what do you think about the indie industry? I mean, you've told me you love that feel of um, uh, of not necessarily needing a publisher or not needing to sell your game uh, elsewhere, but w- what are you seeing as you're getting ready with um, uh, Orcs Must Die and, uh, and and all of this? And what are you seeing in the industry? I mean, do you have time to play games? Do you see the exciting stuff out there? Is there anything that uh, you're noticing trends in the indie industry? Um. I don't get to play nearly as much as I used to. <laughs> Again, it's sort of part of my, you know, after after burning myself up a little bit, I've been trying to, you know, when I'm home, do other things, you know, sure. and and, yeah. and spend my time uh, a little bit differently. So I haven't, I, I I still try to keep my finger on it, but I don't I don't play nearly as much uh, as I used to. Um, but the the indie scene is really exciting um just you know i I have because we've been thinking about a lot of new concepts i have been trolling a lot of uh you know uh you know steam pages and stuff and like oh what 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 other what are some of the other indies uh doing these days and there's a lot of really out there ideas a lot of really exciting things um uh, a lot of a lot of what I love that the indie scene is doing that I think AAA has completely gotten away from is player agency. It's something that uh, designers talk about a lot, and and the indie scene is seems to be fully embracing. Let the player do what the player wants to do. <laughs> um, whereas a lot of the AAA games are, you're going to do exactly what we tell you to do. Um, <laughs> And uh, I, I love that. Uh, that's sort of, you know, the that's, you know, that's what Bioshock uh, was all about. You know, was was giving the player all these tools and and all these opportunities, and then letting them uh, explore it in whatever way they were having the most fun. Um, and I, I see that in a lot of indie games. You know, and a lot of these survival type games that are that are very popular right now are are basically like we're not even going to tell you what to do. We're not even going to tell you the things you could do. Go figure <laughs> it out, you know. Um, and and that's that works. Obviously, a lot of them are being very successful. Um, and so that's exciting that that uh, the indie uh, developers are really remembering uh, that the player is the most important star of the show. This is a question I ask a lot of people that come on the show, and I'm going to ask you as well because I think you're going to have good insight on it. Uh, there are 
so many games that come out now and 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 so many more than you know uh, last year and the year before and the year before uh, especially on pc and in this the steam marketplace what do you see as the keys to making your game stand out and differentiating your game is it player agency is it putting the player first oh boy that's that is a really difficult question um and i it's one of the reasons why I don't play that much is there's so many things. I don't even really know where I should be spending my time. Absolutely. Um, and luckily I work at a business where I, a lot of other people do spend a lot of those times. So I, <laughs> I go off, <laughs> I go off of a lot of recommendations from my coworkers on like, uh, you know, what's the, what's the new, new thing that I should be looking at. And then I'll kind of go at it in a more targeted sort of way. But in terms of like what what you know those sort of garage group people should be doing to like get their game noticed, man, it's it's a really tough uh, situation right now. Especially like you said on on Steam, there's just so many games that are coming out on a monthly basis mm-hmm. um, that it's really hard to to stand out. I know a lot of them. Um, and I think this is a great trend as well. A lot of them are doing a lot with the look and feel of the game, you know, with, with, uh, you know, games like Cuphead, um, that are just like in this really interesting style of the, you know, the old Mickey Mouse cartoons. And, and so a lot, a lot of indie titles are, are like, well, if we can get somebody to see our screenshot and go, Ooh, that looks different. That looks interesting. And then maybe they, they click in, um, and, and read about the game. Um, I think that's something that a lot of the indies are, are smartly doing to try to stand out, um, wherever they can. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't envy them. Robots big enough that we, we do have, uh, we do have a little bit more oomph to, uh, you know, get in with, get, get some press and get some banner ads and, you know, like all those kinds of things if, if we need to. So I, I, I really feel for those, uh, those guys who are, don't have any of the, those resources and just have to kind of cross their fingers. It's, it's gotta be nerve wracking. Well, Paul, you have been a, a real pleasure to talk to. Thank you for sharing your story. Uh, of course, at the end of every episode, I do ask my guests to share one piece of advice. Now you've shared uh, some great advice already throughout the hour and a half that you and I have spent talking to each other. Uh, but is there anything else that you want to send people home with? Anything that might be helpful? So yes, there's one that I kind of is my go-to piece of advice when, when people ask me this, because I get this question uh, from a lot of uh, young guys um, that I meet. And the thing that I always say is especially if you're just out of school and you don't have any uh you know don't have responsibilities of children or or spouses or things like that is you got to be willing to go wherever you need to go in order to pursue this dream of you know being a game maker you you can't be afraid to leave home go across country meet new people you know go to go to those you know, industry drink ups and like all those little things. Like, uh, you you just can't be afraid to, to, to step out of your, uh, out of your comfort zone, especially where you live. I I had a lot of friends uh, growing up who shared my passion for video games and were, you know, talked about doing it, but they, they just got crushed by inertia. They just wouldn't 
move. <laughs> they, they wouldn't leave their comfort zone. Um, whereas I was like, all right, I'm getting in the car and I'm driving 3,000 miles to San Francisco to get paid $8 an hour. And that uh, paid off for me more than anything else. And then, you know, moving from, from the Boston area down to Texas. I'm, I'm not a Texas fan, um, but it was where the opportunity was that I, that I wanted to pursue. So you, you can't, you can't be afraid to go where you need to go and, and, and leave home if you need to and, and explore new horizons. Well, that's pretty inspiring advice from Paul Hellquist, uh, lead designer on a number of your favorite games. Uh, and Paul, again, I've said this uh, many times already, but thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with me and sharing your story. Now, of course, for you listeners, this has been the Indie Insider Podcast. It is the weekly podcast where I get to sit down and talk with people like Paul here about their stories, their advice for others, their thoughts on the indie video game industry. And it is presented by Blackshell Media, a publishing and marketing firm out there to help people make great games and connect with great audiences. You can find them at blackshellmedia.com or connect with them on Twitter at blackshellmedia. Now, if you have thoughts, questions, concerns, anything you want to share with us here at the show, shoot me an email, logan at blackshellmedia.com or connect with me on Twitter at Logan A. Schultz. Paul, if people have really enjoyed what you've had to say, if they want to follow your projects in the future, if they want to know what these exciting new things you're working on are, how do they find you out on those interwebs? Um, well, I'm one of the few people who is not on Facebook, <laughs> but I do, I do, uh, I do have Twitter and I post every now and then, uh, you can follow me at the T H E elf E L F Q U I S T at the elf That's my gamer handle. One last time, Paul, thank you very much for taking the time. I'm glad we finally had a chance to put it all together and, uh, thanks for, for sharing all your insight and your story. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Yeah, the time flew. I'll tell you what, this is by far our longest episode ever. So, um, yeah, thank you for coming on, Paul. And the rest of you, we'll see you all next week. <laughs>